one of the things that I have had had the joy of seeing happen just over years and years in uh, church services where where you have people who are working to uh, to preach the word on a Sunday morning, and you have people who are working to engage people with the word, with the Christ of the word, uh, through song, through music together, and seeing how the how the Lord has has worked to bring together both the content of the text for the morning and the content of the music for the day. Certainly, that, that doesn't happen all just, it, it doesn't just show up. The Lord is at work. Those who are in the Word and those who are working on the music are at work. And I, I, I just say that because I so appreciate the work that, that Ben has put in in preparing this morning, the work that Chris puts in so often week after week. And I get the benefit of knowing where the word is going that morning. And I get to appreciate uh, the way in which those songs prepare us for where the word is going. Uh, Magnificent, marvelous, matchless grace, now freely given to all. Things like that. And I get to sing that uh, knowing where the Lord is taking us in, in the text this morning. I hope those songs will be ringing in your ears as we spend time in Luke 7, verses 1 through 17 today. Uh, we are um, sort of slowly restarting uh, our series in Luke. We've been in First Thessalonians over the summer, and so we'll have a couple of Luke passages this summer, uh, in, in August, I mean, and then we'll, we'll start it a little bit more fully in the fall. Um, John Mawson has graciously agreed to preach twice in August uh, as we continue, as Amy and I continue to work on interacting with others about partnership in the ministry that the Lord has called us into next. So I'm sure John would appreciate your prayers, uh, as I would, as he and I share preaching duties in August. Jesus has come to heal by calling sinners to repentance. He has the authority to do those things. He has the authority to call And he has the authority to extend forgiveness to those who respond to his call. He has the authority to heal, to save, to forgive sin. We saw all of that put together in in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 of Luke as Jesus heals a man of his paralysis in order to prove that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then, then he begins to call sinners to himself and he says, I came as the great physician who has the authority to heal people of their sin when they come to me. There are others around him who are banking on their own authority and who are intent on preserving it. You say, no, we actually want to be the ones in charge. We want to take care of ourselves. And those folks around him have really started to become hostile. And so even in a case when Jesus uses his authority to heal uh, people who are banking on their own authority and who are intending on preserving it, do what Luke describes in chapter 6, verse 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And Jesus is no politician. So when Jesus next gets up to speak, uh, he doesn't speak in such a way as to try to smooth things over. In fact, when Jesus speaks in chapter 6 of Luke in what we sometimes call the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus' words actually continue to divide. They continue to divide between those 
who will want to kill Jesus and those who are willing to follow him to death. There's really no, there's really no middle ground. And that's what his works, that's what his words do as he speaks in Luke chapter 6. Those who are convinced that they are entitled to blessings from God are on the wrong side of the divide. Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich. Now, literal money has a really strong connection there, but Jesus' concern is not ultimately about literal money. Literal money can lead us to the place that Jesus is concerned about. Jesus is concerned there about a heart attitude of being independently wealthy. This idea that that I'm okay on my own. I have what I need. I'm rich, and I don't have need of anything from anyone else. The independently wealthy have no open hand to receive what Jesus provides. Their hand is full. It's full of their own things, whether it's their own righteousness, their own sense of entitlement, uh, whether it is their own money. Some way or another, I, I can get life for myself. So what we find in this passage this morning, what we find demonstrated in two stories is that Jesus is willing and able to restore life to the needy. Jesus is willing and able to restore life to the needy. As Luke writes to his friend that he calls Theophilus, we don't know if that's a nickname or his real name, but as Luke writes to him and to others through him, he he wants Theophilus to know the reliability of the things he's learned about Jesus. Luke wants Theophilus to be totally confident in the fact that Jesus is willing and able to restore life to the needy. He would want the same for us. And so Luke demonstrates that this morning in two stories. We find two encounters with death. Two situations when life is restored to someone, and when life is restored to one person on another person's account. In both cases, in one case, Life is restored to a servant on behalf of his master. In another case, life is restored to a son on behalf of his mother. I think that's relevant in both cases for us. In both cases, there's a teaching moment for the people who are looking on. In both cases, they're very different people. One is a person who, humanly speaking, has power. One is a person who, humanly speaking, has no power. A centurion and a widowed, bereaved mother. But in both cases, there are people who stand before Jesus with empty hands. And with empty hands, they stand under Jesus' promise, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus responds positively to both, and he responds positively to both with authority driven by affection. He is able and he's willing from the heart to restore life to the needy. I want to look at the stories, but before I do, I just want you to hear them and to hear the willingness and ability of Jesus to restore life. Luke 7, verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant 
who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Two encounters with death. First, an encounter on the part of a centurion. So Jesus enters Capernaum, uh, one of the towns near his hometown. And in Capernaum, there's a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier, and he is a, a, a commander of a thousand, rather a hundred, a hundred other Roman soldiers. So he's a soldier that's in charge. And he's stationed in this town of Capernaum. And this, this centurion has a servant who we're told is highly valued by him. Probably a servant who's trustworthy, a servant who's capable, a servant whose service is valuable to him. And this servant himself is valuable to the centurion. And as we hear a little more of this centurion's perspective and attitude, I think we have reason to believe that this value is not only functional, but that it's, that's, that it's affectionate as well, that he cares for this servant. He highly values him. And this servant, we're told, is sick and at the point of death. So the centurion takes action on behalf of his servant. And as he does, we enter into a description of an unusual, unexpected relationship. This centurion is not only a Gentile. So here's a Gentile living in the land of the Jews. He's not only a Gentile, but he is a commander of Roman soldiers. Here's the despised occupation of Rome in Israel. 
This is our land, and, and these outsiders, these dirty Gentiles, have taken it over and are exercising authority. And this guy, this centurion, is the embodiment of that despised occupation. Here he is. And yet, this man is both willing and able to send to Jesus the elders of the Jews on his behalf. Somehow he's able to call them to him and say, would you please go to Jesus for me and ask him to come and heal my servant? And they do. And they do it willingly and they do it earnestly. On his behalf, when they come to Jesus, they insist that he is worthy to have you do this for him. This should catch our attention. This is, this is not a normal thing to happen uh, between these two different groups, but it does. Uh, these elders of the Jews are motivated to come to Jesus on his behalf and plead with him earnestly. Now, it's worth pausing there to stop and pay careful attention to why it is that they think he's worthy for Jesus to do this for, for him. Their appeal is earnest, but we will also notice that it is strongly based on his relationship with them. He's a fan of us. He likes us, and he does good things for us. He affirms us, and he's useful to us. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong at all with, with loving their nation and building them their synagogue. There's nothing wrong at all with, with these folks being really appreciative of that. But we're going to find a contrast. They're impressed. They, they, they like this guy. They're impressed by him. Jesus is going to be impressed by him as well. But Jesus is going to be impressed in an entirely different way and for entirely different reasons. Jesus has a totally different economy than they have. They have an economy, a way things work, a way that you become worthy to have good things done for you. And how do you do that? Well, in this case, you become worthy. They, they demonstrate by, by the way they plead for his worthiness. You become worthy by positive association with us, by liking us and by being useful to us. In their economy, the works that most caught their attention were the ones that affirmed and promoted their own people. It's the opposite of what Jesus has just taught in his Sermon on the Plain. The opposite of that empty-handed coming to him, knowing your need, knowing that you're not good enough, knowing that you don't have something to give in trade, it's the opposite of what Jesus has taught when he says, blessed are the poor. And it's actually the opposite of the perspective of the centurion himself. He doesn't come with full hands. In fact, he sends another delegation to order to, in a sense, uh, correct the, the appeal that's just been made on his behalf by the elders of the Jews. He sends another group. In this case, he sends his friends uh, those who could more reliably reflect his attitude, and they come to him with a very different message. And the message is, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. He actually uses a, a little bit different word for worthy than the elders have used. The word the elders have used leans in the direction of being morally worthy. 
He's earned this for you, for you to do this for him. He's something who's more, he's someone who's morally worthy of having you do something good of having you restore life at his request. The centurion's economy is a little bit different. And the word he uses leans more in the direction of saying, I'm not significant. I don't matter enough to even deserve to have you come under my roof. Either way, I'm, I'm not worthy. He, he doesn't even address the question of whether he's morally worthy. He doesn't even get to that calculation. It's as if he says, Jesus, when I compare your significance to mine, when I compare your authority to mine, I find that I don't even deserve to be in the same room with you. I am so insignificant compared to you. I, I fall too far down the chain of command to even deserve to be near you. That's why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you myself, sent others on my behalf. Compared to Jesus, this commander of a hundred Roman soldiers is more like a child who knows his place. He behaves as one who, in, in, in the way that Jesus would define it, is poor. And he knows how authority works. He's had lots of experience in the realm of authority, in the realm of being able to get things done by your word. Uh, if you've been in a military environment, then you've experienced some of this. You've experienced how this works, and, and, and he knows. He, he says, here's the reason that I wouldn't even, uh, I wouldn't ask you to trouble yourself to come to me, and I don't consider myself worthy for you to come to my house. The reason is because of my experience with authority. For I too, this is verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. It says, I accomplish things by my word on a natural level, under, under this, this system that's been set up by Rome in which there's motivation built into the system for those who are put under my authority to simply do what I say. I don't have to strong arm them. I don't have to force them. I don't have to try to manipulate them. I don't have to beg them. When I speak, things get done. They happen. I don't even have to worry about my tone because this is, this is just the way things work around here. <laughs> it is funny for me to think about sometimes because partly living in a world that frankly so despises authority and, and partly being somebody who's really scared of ever being bossy, um, I even watch my tone when I'm asking Siri to do something. It's, it's a strange thing. That would have been foreign to this man. Uh, he wouldn't have had to watch his tone. And that's not because he was a tyrant. It's not because he didn't care about people. It's because he didn't have to be a tyrant. He had authority that made his words accomplish things. So all he had to say was, servant, do this. Done. It was done. It happened. All it takes is a word. And he finds himself in a place where he realizes there is something that my word can't do. In all other cases, I can tell my servant, do this, and he does it. But I can't tell my servant, get better, and have him do it. My word doesn't have that authority. But Jesus, your word, I've heard of you. Your word has that authority, and you don't even have to be here to make it happen. 
you are able to restore life to the needy by your word. Well, the elders have endorsed this centurion because of what he's done for them. Uh, Jesus marvels at this centurion. He endorses him as well, but for an entirely different reason. We see in verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. This is different. And this is a unique opportunity. Here's the first of two teaching opportunities. As Jesus turns from the immediate situation to the people around him and says, are you paying attention? Are you watching? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He doesn't say, boy, this guy is more worthy than he thinks. He's humble and he's awesome. Isn't that cool? He says, no, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not even in Israel have I found somebody coming to me with such expectant open hands to receive what I offer. Not even in Israel. And who's he talking to when he turns to the crowd? Well, he's mainly speaking to Israel at the time. He's mainly speaking to those who are predisposed to think, we deserve good things because we got here first. We belong here. The centurion is an example, not of the kind of person who deserves. He's an example of the kind of person who receives, who receives by faith. In fact, in this particular account, as Luke, as Luke records it, Luke doesn't even record the saying of the word. The centurion has said, has said, say the word, my servant will be healed. And this happens so quickly, Luke doesn't even record Jesus saying the word. But he clearly has because we see the power of it happening. Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And the result of faith is Jesus by his word, restoring life. The result of faith is salvation. Jesus restores life in response to faith by his word. And the next story in verses 11 through 17 is set carefully alongside the first story. They're really similar to each other in a lot of ways. You have two, two experiences of the threat of death. You have two people who find themselves to be desperately needy. And you also have two people who are, who are really different from each other. In many ways, uh, the seriousness is, is upgraded about six levels in this next story. And the first reason for that is that the line of death has already been crossed. The servant was at the point of death. When Jesus enters this town called Nain, he finds a man who has already crossed the line. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Here's a woman who, again, in the economy of the day, has suddenly found herself facing the loss of her livelihood. Her husband has already died. The only person that she has left to take care of her, to provide for her, is her son, and her son has died. One of the, one of the hard things about death, even, in, even in, in, in our life, is that there are so many 
So many new things that have to be taken care of. So many arrangements that have to be made, especially with a sudden death. And in some ways, it almost feels like insult added to injury that somebody who's just lost somebody they love has to also sign all kinds of paperwork and make all kinds of decisions. And it's really, really hard. And in this case, it's even worse because she doesn't just have to sign paperwork. She has lost her last hope, humanly speaking, of her livelihood. And mixed with that, she has lost her son. That, that's beyond processing. <laughs> there's, there's nothing left to do at that point but to weep. There's no explaining. There's no strategizing. There's only weeping left. And Jesus sees it and he feels it. The Lord saw her, verse 13. Now, this is the first time that Luke uses this label for Jesus when he's describing him in a story, the Lord. Here he comes with authority. And he does come with authority. And we might ask the question, as Jesus, the Lord, comes with authority, what drives his use of his authority? Does he use his authority because he really likes to be recognized for it? Because he really likes people to show up and say, wow, we like to have him around. He's useful. He's worthy to have good things done for him. You can imagine the appeal of using your authority for those reasons. It's not Jesus' heart here. It's not what drives the way he uses his authority. Jesus is driven by affection. The Lord saw her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Can you imagine being in that situation and having somebody come to you? You're facing the most desperate imaginable life situation because you've lost your only son. And a stranger comes to you and says, do not weep. I wonder what flashed through her mind. And at the same time, she saw something that, that we only see in words. She saw Jesus there. And she had to see in the way that he approached her and in the way that he said this, that he means business and that he loved her. Here, here's, as Jesus says this, his words have power that nobody else's words would have. If other people said, don't weep, it might sound really, really weak, or it might sound really, really insensitive. But in this case, his words have power. They're worth paying attention to. <clears throat> there must be promise in his words that there is some reason, some reason that you can't come up with not to weep. <clears throat> and there is. He does mean business. And there's another teaching moment. And so as if once again to catch the crowd's attention, Jesus does something really unexpected. He came up, verse 14, and touched the beer. The beer would have been like this open plank that the dead body would have been laid on. Uh, that would have been really unexpected uh, because anybody who came in that kind of contact with a dead body under normal circumstances would have become unclean for seven days. That's what's described in, uh, in Numbers 19.16. In this case, uh, Numbers 19.16 says that if anybody touches a dead body or touches a grave, then they become unclean. Now, Jesus gets closer than a grave. He touches the, 
the, the platform that this dead body is sitting on. And so he catches people's attention. Even in this crowd, even amid all this weeping, as people are moving out to the burial place, he catches their attention. And the bearers stood still. So we wonder what, what they must have wondered, what in the world is going to happen now? This is really unusual. And of course it is. Under normal circumstances, a person would have become unclean through contact with a dead body. But here, the influence flows the other way. Instead of death flowing to Jesus, life flows from him, once again, by his word. Verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. Here, he says the word. And not only is a servant brought back from the point of death, a son is brought back from death. He says the word to a dead person. A dead person who doesn't even have the power to hear him. Totally hopeless. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost comical the way that Luke phrases the next thing that he says. Imagine reading this, this sentence by itself. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Well, dead men don't do that. Dead men don't sit up. Dead men don't speak. And of course, this man was only very recently dead. But I wonder if Luke is stating it this way for emphasis, that this is absolutely impossible under every other circumstance and absolutely possible in the presence of Jesus and under the power of his word. Here is the authority that Jesus has to restore life to a dead man and to his hopeless mother, to both of them, and to restore life to sinners by calling them to himself for forgiveness. Remember, Jesus has already been strategically careful to prove that he has authority to forgive sins. Not only to reverse death, but to reverse the cause of death on our behalf. And here he does it, and he does it out of compassion. Jesus restores life to the man and really to his mother, out of compassion. And the people can't help but notice as a result, wow, a great prophet has arisen among us. And he has. And in many ways, they speak more than they know. They don't speak more than Jesus knows. He knows this already. In fact, he's already told them that this is the case. He's told them this just a couple of chapters ago. Ben, you preached on this passage uh, uh, I guess it's a few months ago now. This is back in chapter 4 when Jesus said, this is who I am. I am a prophet. And prophets are not appealing to people who already consider themselves insiders. People who think we deserve to be here because we got here first. And when a prophet shows up and says things need to change, they say, no, no, they don't. Uh, we already deserve to be here. We're fine. Uh, our hands are full. We don't need your word. And so Jesus says in Luke 4, 24, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he makes two comparisons. A comparison of himself with Elijah and a comparison of himself with Elisha. Listen to the comparisons. He, here are prophets who go to needy outsiders. 
But in truth, I tell you, this is Luke 4.25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Look briefly with me at the story of Elijah going to this needy outsider. Uh, this is in this is in 1 Kings 17. <clears throat> Two parts to the story. The first part is the story you may be familiar with uh, when, when Elijah comes to this widow who has one son. And she's gathering a few sticks uh, to make a little fire so, so that she can bake their last meal and they can eat it and die. And Elijah asks her to respond to him by faith. He says, first, bring me a little and you'll be taken care of. And so she responds by faith. This needy outsider with open hands says, I'm going to give you the last of what I have. And this is the story where the, 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 the oil and the, the flour never runs out. He restores life to her. And then her son dies. And she comes to him and says, what in the world is going on? I was desperate before. Why would you even come to me in the first place? And then we pick this up in 1 Kings 17, uh, starting in verse 23. And Elijah took the child and brought him down. Oh, I'm sorry. I fast-forwarded. Verse 22. I'm fast-forwarding too much. Verse 20. He cried to the Lord. O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let the child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. Same words in the, in the Greek that are used uh, for what Jesus does in giving the son back to his mother here. Jesus looks a lot like Elijah, only better. Jesus does it by his word. He looks a lot like Elijah. He said he would, uh, only better. And Elijah ministers to needy outsiders. He also looks, as he said, a lot like Elisha. Look once again at Luke 4, verse 27 this time. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Here is Naaman the Syrian. A commander of a Gentile army that would have, would have embodied uh, the enemies of God. And Naaman was a leper. And in Naaman's house was a little girl who, was, who, who had been essentially kidnapped from Israel during one of the raids. And she makes an appeal on behalf of her Gentile commander. That, Man, I wish that he could have life restored. I wish, that he could, I wish that he would go and talk to the prophet in Israel. And eventually, after quite a bit of haggling, he does. And Naaman has life restored to him. So many parallels with this uh, story of the centurion. And in this case, with the centurion's servant, Jesus looks a lot like Elisha. 
only better. And people will respond to, to Jesus in a way that they responded to Elijah and to Elisha. So in one sense, their response in verse 17 is obvious. A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people and the, the message spreads. And at the same time, as that message spreads, there's a divide. The divide will continue. In fact, in some cases, it's, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a confusing situation. Who is this person? He doesn't do things quite the way that we would have expected him to do them. We'll even find in our next text in Luke that John the Baptist himself is forced to reckon with the question, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus sends him assurance of who he is, along with a statement of, of, of in a sense, of, of warning, but more than that, of blessing. For anybody who's reckoning with this question, he'll say in chapter 7, verse 23, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who sees what I do, and instead of being driven away, is driven to me. The one who comes to me, again, with open empty hands, who recognizes that I am the one who is really willing and really able to restore life to the needy. And what I want us to take away this morning is, is this unique fact that in both cases, Jesus restores life to the needy on behalf of another. On the account of another, a centurion asks on behalf of his servant, Jesus restores life to this son out of compassion for his mother. In, in so many ways, we need life restored to us, sometimes in small ways. But for each of us, there are those for whom we long to see life given. Those who don't know the life of Christ. And maybe we've used our words, and maybe our words have run out of power. And we're willing to continue to talk, but we've tried to talk. We've tried to say, look, you're, you're destroying your life. Uh, you're, you're headed toward death. In some cases, you're, you're headed toward eternal death. I don't want that for you. And maybe we've talked and realized that if I'm left to the power of my own words, I can't get this done. I can get some things done with my words, but I can't get this done. So who is it for you? Who, who's highly valued by you? And legitimately so. Who, who's, whose life is your life bound up with? Who are you grieving over or really, really concerned about? Are you dealing with someone who needs the restored life that Jesus gives and you can't figure out how to make it happen? You're, you're not alone. You see the heart of Jesus, a willingness to give life at the bidding of another, someone who's asking him, will you do this for this person who needs it? Jesus pays attention to you. And he pays attention to that person on your account, to that son, to that daughter, to that friend, to that brother or that sister, that neighbor. Jesus works with you. He pays attention. He listens what Jesus does immediately in both of these stories, he has the power to do today. He may have surprised some of you by when, when you have had somebody that you prayed for for years and suddenly you see Jesus bring them to life. And it's astounding. 
He has the power to do it today, and he has the power to do it over time. He knows what's necessary. He knows if the person that you are grieving over, that you're deeply concerned for, that you've been asking for for a long time, he knows what it takes to empty their hands. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it takes a process. He knows what it takes to empty their hand of their trust in money or of their ambitions for this life or of their sense that, that this, this, my, the lifestyle that I've chosen is what defines me or of their sense of superiority or entitlement or righteousness. He knows what's filling their hands and he knows what it takes to empty it so that he can fill that hand with himself. So keep asking. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you were asking this morning, and I just want to tell you you're on the right track. Keep asking. Keep, keep sending delegations, as it were, to Jesus. You, you can do this by your word. Speak, speak, and do this. I've seen you do it before. I want to see you do it again for this person. Keep asking. And I know that you're willing. We, we see the willingness of Jesus um, when, when we look in an interesting way at a story that Jesus will tell later in Luke. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, he's doing a couple different things. One of the things that he's doing is he's exposing a problem. He says, as I talk to you people, uh, I, want to, I want to show you that there's something missing for you. Something really important that's missing for you. A way in which you don't share the heart of God. And so he, he tells a few different stories about something that's been lost and then is found again. And the finder brings people together to rejoice. And they rejoice in it. And then there's a story that is a little bit more complex. There's something that's lost. In this case, someone. And the story is longer and when the lost is found, there's a problem. Someone who ought to join in the rejoicing refuses to rejoice. Imagine if we take that story and fill in that gap, and the story works a little bit differently. And here's the prodigal son. He's sitting in the pigsty. He's so hungry that he longs to fill his stomach with the pods that he's feeding the pigs. And Jesus says, he came to himself. He finally, his, his hands are emptied. He finally realizes there's no life here. No life here. Imagine if as he comes to himself, he looks up, and there, leaning on the fence, is his brother. And his brother says, nice place. You like it here? This place stinks. Dad wants you home. So do I. I brought you a change of clothes. Who does that? Who does that? The true older brother does that. Jesus is the true older brother. He's the one who came, not only with a willingness, not only with the ability, but with the initiative to seek and to save the lost to go all the way, to go all the way into the pigsty, as it were, uh, in, in, in a much greater sense, to go all the way to the cross, to save all those who would trust in him. And if you care for someone who is lost, if you are asking for someone who is lost, 
if you care, how much more does he? How much more does he share the heart of the father who says, we ought to rejoice for your brother was dead and is now alive. He rejoices. He leads us into it. So let's continue to join him in that process. Father, as, as we interact with others around us who are in need of life, uh, help us to remember the heart of Jesus, the compassion that he demonstrates toward this mother, uh, the willingness of Jesus to speak, e- to speak even from a distance by his word and to restore life. And Father, we, we, we just pray for those that are on our hearts whose hands are filled with something else right now, that you would be emptying their hands in order that they might be filled with Jesus alone, that we might rejoice with him and with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.